Thanks for being here, Barbara. So, um, first question is just about um, humour and what makes it an insightful and interesting angle to look at work, the workplace? Well, first of all, it's interesting. I mean, humour, everyone likes humour and fun and intrinsically it's quite an interesting topic. Yeah. So, um, it's a great way to look at the workplace because people will talk to you about it. They see it as non-threatening. They'll talk to you about their humour because they don't really think that they're giving away much else but really they are they're telling you a whole lot about how they see the world they're telling you about their organization their organizational culture so there's a whole lot wrapped up in humor and it's when you start unpicking it and unpacking it you realize how much you've got on the surface they just talk to you about humor but there's all this other stuff wrapped inside it and you see their values and where they're coming from so it really is insightful um and because it's non-threatening people talk to you quite freely it's quite an enjoyable discussion to have Everyone has an angle on humour. Everyone thinks they've got a good sense of humour. It's a pretty rare person to admit they haven't got a, a sense of humour at all. So no. everyone's got something to say about it, and everyone's got good examples and good stories to tell you, so you get um, all of that as well. So it gives you a, a lot of really rich material. Absolutely, yeah. In some of your research, you look at how um, sometimes humour doesn't quite align, and that can be a thing. Do you find that like people don't? There are some people who are not so into humour, or like you say, everyone likes to think that they really enjoy humour and enjoy humour at work, because it seems to be sort of a something that's evolved and has become something that has been useful. Do you have any thoughts on that as well, and how the workplace differs, perhaps um, slightly from you know a lot of people talk about in relationships, they might go. Um, I really want them to be funny, and that's actually the most important thing that they put. In a workplace, there's um, a different dynamic, and how do those how do those um, clash? And Definitely, and um, there are people who have said to me, I don't come to work to have fun or to joke around or laugh, I just want to get on with my job, so that you've got to respect those boundaries and those people. They're putting up their own boundary. Um, so there is a misalignment. Also, the humour you're likely to share in your private life, um, at a comedy club, say, or with your partner, is going to be quite different from what happens at work. Workplace humour, it does happen, it can be hilarious, all sorts of things can go on, but the boundaries are different than in your personal life. So you've got to remember that you're in a workplace. Yes, you might be quite a jocular person who really enjoys laughing and joking, but you've got to remember you're in the workplace. And that joke that you might have down the pub with a group of friends is definitely not going to work in the workplace. And so I have a few rules, if you like, that I've developed around workplace humour that leave sexist, sexual and racist humour alone. It just has no place and it's going to get you into trouble. So, um, yeah, you've just got to remember your context and we've got more careful. We've got HR departments, we've got litigation, we've got a whole lot going on in the workplace that can make humour really, really risky. Absolutely. Mm. And I think another interesting thing is sort of the more sort of... um, not official roles, but the, you know, you talk about the joker and then mm-hmm. also the gatekeeper. Um, how do they play into it? Because they're not know. official <laughs> roles that have been hired in. As they're that. not. And I've, I've just finished writing about that in our new book about the joker and the gatekeeper. They're really important roles. So somebody, every single place I've organ, organization I've been in and, and researched, I found a joker. And that's, that's a great person to find. There's the joker. Usually everyone can point to them, say, oh, it's oh, it's Len in accounts, or it's, it's Sheila over there in marketing. They're really, really funny. And there's usually a consensus about that. The person knows they're the joker, but they didn't get their job by saying, you will become our joker. That's, that's the opening we've got. It evolves. So as they get to know their workplace, 
jokes and as they make more jokes they become known for their humor and if they're good at it and I suggest to you they're not the joker unless they're good at it um, they're quick they they're clever they're fast they make people laugh that role evolves and that becomes their role it's a tricky role though because sometimes it can hold them back from promotion because you don't tend to get senior management doing a lot of joking around because that's risky um, so it's an interesting role that evolves and people sort of step in and own it a little bit um, likewise the gatekeeper there's always people who say steady on uh, keep the party clean chaps is one of my famous phrases from my research um, about uh, there were some young men clustered around a computer laughing at something fairly dodgy and um, this older woman went past and keep the party clean chaps. Uh, it's, it's classic and that's classic gatekeeper behaviour. They're saying, hey, you're looking at something that's a bit naughty. This is a law firm. We don't do that here. Clean it up, guys. And it was an admonishment. And they were lawyers and she was a secretary, but she'd been there longer. She knew the rules. She knew that they were breaking them and she just gently gave them a little reminder so she took that gatekeeping role sometimes it's done unofficially like her sometimes a manager takes that role or HR gets called in to say hey this joke's got out of hand and you need to sort it out and they become a gatekeeper so it's both formal and informal at the same time there are informal people who step in and say hey you know you're pushing it too far and then there's the formal roles like HR managers saying hey, we've got to shut that down, or that can't happen again, or that's not appropriate here. So, yeah, they're in contrast, the, the jokers and the gatekeepers, but I think we need them all. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you kind of, sometimes you usually get a, a, a joker that's right up there, the top joker, and then you might get their, their sidekick, their, their, their Robin to their Batman, if you like, that that plays along and, and makes their jokes funnier or, or bolsters them up or throws them the line that makes them even funnier. So you, you get layers as well. Um, but... Mm-hmm. I can usually find that joker. There is a gender effect in it too. More men are more likely to adopt the joker role. And that's to do with men's humour is just a little bit more performance oriented, a little bit more about display where women's humour tends to be a little bit more affiliative and gentler and quieter, not with so much performance effect. So there's definitely a gender effect. That being said, I did find some female jokers as well, (laughs) happily. You mentioned before that sexual and and racial jokes are a bit of a no-go in work situations. What would you say to people who think that uh, maybe like a PC culture has gone a bit too far and that it can be detrimental to society? That's a fair comment, and we have got a bit PC, and so we shut down a lot of humour because we are being PC. But on the same time, at the same time, we have to remember we're in a workplace. Hmm. So I say those jokes are really quite funny um, a lot of the time, but you may maybe have to take them out of the workplace and share them with people who you know are going to be okay with them. It's not worth offending a colleague and then having to work with them. Um, so I don't like being the humour police. I don't like saying shut down humour, but some forms at work are definitely, you have to keep in that no-go area because you never know what someone's tolerances are. For example, we had a situation where somebody made a joke about intellectual disability um, to a group. It was reasonably mild, but somebody sitting listening to that joke had an intellectually disabled child at home. So you don't know, unless you know that about them, you know, your joke could be really, really offensive. So that, I mean, that's also a no-go area. You wouldn't really typically make jokes about people with disabilities, but sometimes people just forget in that quick-witted moment and make a joke like that. So, yes, we have got very PC, but I think our workplace has demanded we get very PC as well. And humour is one place where we, we have to kind of toe that line 
Uh, but that being said, there are spaces where you can have jokes with people if you know them well enough that are maybe a little bit more on the edge. Hmm. It's also what the jokers do. They know where the edges are and they know how far you can step over that edge or the boundary, cross the line and then pull back in. Sometimes they get it wrong and they get into trouble, but they're usually very adept at knowing I can push it just a little bit further and then pull it back in. But yeah, it it is a shame to see PC taking over. There's a part of me that laments that, but I also have seen humour go horribly wrong and really hurt people too. So there's the humanistic side. I don't want to see people get hurt. And humour has, if if you look at popular culture, humour has gone really overboard and caused deaths in some countries where people have have really objected to cartoons, for example, um, through uh, Charlie Hedbo a few years ago, stuff like that. So humour can be seen to be very, very offensive too, depending on your worldview. Absolutely. I think one th- another thing with um, researching humour is it doesn't necessarily make sense to do it um, quantitatively, like just counting <laughs> the jokes doesn't make for a very interesting paper. So you tend to go into the workplace and mm-hmm. examine it for a while. How have you found that challenging and how does that mix with a sort of the current scientific status that if you can't count it, <laughs> is it important? Um, so have you navigated that? Oh, that's a big loaded question. But <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, for a, for a f- the, the very first place, my worldview is that you had to be there. You can't understand humour unless you understand the context. So you have to be in the context. You have to have a sense of what's funny here, what's going on, what may have happened last week that jokes build, okay? So you, you have to be in that context to get it. Um, and I, I don't believe you can effectively count it. That being said, I won't um, dismiss the work of quantitative researchers either. Either They've done some really good lab studies, some experimental studies. So there are parts of humour that you can count and maybe maybe quantify to degrees or um, you can do neurological stuff where you look at brainwaves and stuff. So I can't discount that kind of field, but it's not for me. Yeah. I'm I'm more of an ethnographer. I like to get in, see what's going on around in the whole context. That has presented some massive challenges for me. Um, I've been in very male-dominated environments where there's been really crude sexual and sexist humour, and I have had to, as a researcher, kind of suck that up and deal with it. So I've just written a nice paper about it on feminist <laughs> research subject positions about how confronting that can be as a feminist researcher to be asked to access male humour that is highly um, sexist and sexual. Um, And and you have to come to terms with that if you're going to do this sort of work. You have to say, how am I going to deal with this? And so one of the ways you deal with it is writing a paper afterwards about the situations you found yourself in and and what you did about it and what you wish you'd done about it. And that can be um, both cathartic and quite interesting from a research perspective. Absolutely. Could you tell us a little bit about your book? That is Hi, I'd love up. to tell you about my book. <laughs> um, oh, I had a picture. Yeah. Uh, laugh out loud. Yeah. Yay. Uh, a user's guide to workplace humour. So this is my second book. This is co-written with um, one of my colleagues, uh, Professor Kurt Inkson, who's away overseas just at the moment, but we've written this together. And um, what we've done is taken my academic work on humour research, which is written for academic audiences. So it's written in a specific academic way that we have to follow certain protocols, which is not always super interesting (laughs) for everybody. Um, So that book is for scholars of humour and libraries. And I'm not saying it's too hard for anyone else. I'm just saying it's written in a way 
that brings out those scholarly arguments. This book is a little bit more fun to write in that we've written this for everybody and particularly people in workplaces. So the questions I get asked a lot are, how do I manage humour? What do I do about it? How can I create humour? Can I create fun? I get HR managers asking me that stuff all the time. So we've written this book for them. Yes, you can encourage humour, but there is some humour you need to discourage too. So we've talked about the bright side and the dark side. We've talked about um, technology and humour. So how that we share humour differently with social media, emoticons, emojis, memes, all the stuff that's going around the internet and how that changes humour as well. Um, so we've got chapters for everyone on that. And we've written it with a little box of takeaways at the end of every chapter. So here's the do's and don'ts. If they haven't got time to read the whole book, a busy manager can grab it and say, hey, what they say about this? And, and get a takeaway. In a, in a quite a easy packaged sort of form which is not my usual style but it's been good fun to write it's also full of um, oh, 60 or 70 different stories stories from my research stories that we've collected from around the world people have fed us and people love telling you their stories so they've fed us some really interesting stories that we're able to analyse and show how that's played out and some tragic real life um, situations where people have lost their jobs over jokes they've told and that's actually more common than you'd expect yeah one thing that like from in class you would tell a lot of stories that weren't just from your research but from previous experience when you're actually say working as an HR manager mm -hmm. um, how do you think that informed the research that you do now and the teaching that you do now it did. I mean, everything in your life informs what you do. So the fact that I've got some actual experience in workplaces informed my humour. For a start, it took me there. Um, I had a job. Uh, one of my first jobs out of uni, got my undergraduate degree as a mature student and went and worked in an IT company. And one of the things I found out really quickly was I was too um, happy. I was too in, involved in having fun and I needed to um, not laugh at work. So there was a, a direct edict from a manager, you can't laugh at work. It was a good salary, best salary I'd ever earned at that stage, nice conditions, nice job, and I hated it. I couldn't last, um, I lasted three months. Um, I wasn't the only one, people were leaving in droves. And interestingly, the day I resigned, I got an offer from my then university to do a master's um, degree under scholarship conditions, which is a pretty nice offer. So I thought, there's something here. And when I had to find a topic to research as part of that master's degree, and that thesis is right here, um, Humour just seemed to be obvious to me. There, I'd been in a company where you weren't allowed to laugh and they couldn't keep staff. I'd always had an interest in humour, in comedy. British comedy was what I grew up on. Um, so it was there. All, all the pieces seemed to align. So that job definitely informed the research. Um, other than that, I'd worked a bit in IT jobs and... In the earlier days in IT, they weren't PC at all. They were kind of dot-com cowboys, you might say. And so I'd seen a lot go on. And some of the stories from my research um, actually double up as uh, companies I'd worked for as well. So I'd seen and talked to people about what went on. And I knew they were rich environments for lots of good stories and a bit of misbehavior. Yeah. Um, so And I brought that to it. So, so I can't really separate them out, some of the stories in this latest book, uh, from both my research and my work experiences combined. Yeah, and it almost sort of informed where you knew where to look. You were like, Here, here's some places I've been, I can go back here and dig yep. a little deeper. And one of the things, the hard things to do in research is get into companies. When you want to do ethnography and hang around all the time, 24-7 for a period of time, that is really confronting for an organisation because you might see all sorts of things that they wish you hadn't seen and that did actually happen. Um, but... 
having had that experience in some IT companies, it gave me a foot in the door. Hey, would you have me in your company? And of course, when you're in one company, then they know somebody else who might have you, or they know a really funny company that might be really good for your research. So it snowballs like that. That's called a snowball sample, actually. So um, quite useful. What um, advice would you have for students wanting to enter academia in a more niche research subject? Yeah, go for it. Um, (laughs) um, You should. That's the good thing about academia. It's a really beautiful, wide environment with academic freedom is one of our great um, great ethos here. So if you think that that's an area of interest for you, chances are you're going to be able to... um, research it. So if a student wanted to come in, in fact, I've got students coming in and sort of springboarding off some of my topics. So I've got somebody doing um, some work on coffee rituals right now because I do work about food and food rituals. Um, So they see a place for them in some of those alternative subjects that really intrigue them. Um, And you, you find your space, you find the person or the supervisor that is in an area that's of interest to you and, and willing to let you to go a bit further with it. So it's it's really good for that. Um, it's probably why I'm here. I don't quite fit corporate models all that well. I don't particularly like them. I don't want to be doing strategizing and boring meetings, though I do do some boring <laughs> meetings in the university. I mostly want to be finding things that intrigue me and interest me, and that's what university allows me to do. So really, I am just the perpetual student myself. Mm. Uh, so you mentioned food as another area of, of interest. Could you explain a little bit about that? Um, I got to it through fun and humour. I know that probably sounds weird, but I studied humour, and then from that I found a sort of subset of humour which is fun, which is pleasurable events and activities that people do at work. Now, when I started looking into that and doing pulling out the fun research, I found that for people at work, fun is often around food and events and alcohol and, and those sorts of reward type activities. So then I thought, well, that's interesting, and started researching on food rituals and how people um, see those at work and how employers see them. And often organisations give you food, and it's kind of a reciprocity thing. You work hard for us here, we're giving you some food, or here's a nice you know, banquet, we want you to do overtime, however that works. But <laughs> So food is an interesting thing, and it is tied up with this notion of fun and enjoyment and reward. So again, it's part of that rich fabric of social relations at work, mm. and um, I'm continuing to research it. Um, I've had a student do her master's thesis on, um, what does she call it, on eating and belonging, and um, and she found that intriguing and went further, and we're writing a paper on that now, hoping to publish. I've published one on food rituals, and we're extending that piece of research Mm. um, fairly soon. Yeah, fantastic. Within food as well, um, alcohol, and when you mentioned mm. alcohol, and that ties in with humour because that's a good event where you can have a uh, you can have an event where alcohol influences humour, so it kind of goes full circle. And so all your research um, combines in that sense. Absolutely. Both of them, I think, as well. Like when you look at food, fun, and humour, they're all on that boundary space between what is work and what is home life. And so you know, do you have any thoughts on? Um, you know, I remember doing, looking at some research where it was like the company was giving out pizza. And nobody was really asking why the pizza was being given out. It was because they couldn't get home um, in time to have dinner themselves. And that's kind of what Google Campus is about, right? So Mm. they provide all the food and they keep you on campus. Um, All of the the boundaries between work and home life have got quite blurry because we can work from home and then we can bring home into work with, we can get on the internet, we can see our kids, we can set up a camera and watch my dog if I want while I'm at work. Um, so, So the boundaries are fairly blurry as well. And 
it's my personal sort of thesis that the organisations are our new villages. We don't have little villages anymore. We don't have as much community. We we travel and that. So therefore, when we get in an organisation, we do a lot of the things that maybe in days gone by we did in villages. We hang out together. We eat together. We um, we maybe drink together. Laugh together. Laugh together. Yeah. Exactly. So um, so it is kind of like a village. It does have a culture. There's a whole lot going on. Again, the social fabric, which is important. Hmm. Yes, that's interesting because, yeah, like, where we're working at the moment at the beehive, uh, like on Friday, not not the actual beehive, the technical <laughs> oh, <darn>. smells <laughs> palm. Yeah, yeah. yeah Good on you. Oh, that beehive. Yeah, I was thinking, wow, exalted <laughs> circles yeah. you're in. <laughs> yeah, every Friday um, evening, there's always the spread and, and, the, and the nibbles and the alcohol and everything, and everyone from all the different companies come down and mingle and network, and and that's where you start to see. Some of the different types of humour coming out at that stage, right? Yeah. After a couple yeah. of drinks, right? And it loosens up. Yeah, it <laughs> alcohol changes the skate, right? So yeah. there's there's some research work there too, because I think alcohol is also becoming just a bit risky for companies um, mm. in Australia. Uh, as an employer, if you provide alcohol at a function, now I believe that you must have the host responsibility of uh, like taxi chits and making sure people mm. are getting home safely. I think that's where it's changed. And I could see that developing here as well because there's that responsibility coming in around alcohol and what has gone wrong at company events. There have been some high-profile companies recently where uh, perhaps alcohol's paid, played a big part and got people into trouble and, and lines have been crossed. And that's where you know humour goes too far. Other things go too far. So alcohol is, a, is a, um, an interesting one because it, it changes people, it changes behaviour, and then people tend to forget that they're still in a work context. A work yeah. function is still work. It's still a work context. Um, so some of your work boundaries still apply, but when you bring alcohol into that, things change dramatically and the humour gets more risque or um, and people's uh, filters tend to drop off. So it's an interesting, interesting one, and I think watch the space because I'm intending yeah. to do some more work in that space. I think it's really interesting. Absolutely, I see that. In, it's quite interesting looking at these two forces. We were going, oh, maybe we need to rein in humour, but we also are having more of a community village feel within the workplace. Yep. Like, how do they tie together? It's interesting when we, when I think mm-hmm. about our workplace, it's the the beehive is. Um, a really a shared space where you have offices and then you have a lot of communal space nice. and offices in the middle and then if all of the companies can go down and have um, drinks on a Friday night. And so when I think about yeah, that, nice. that's even more, it's not just a community within a company, it's a sort of community yeah. of companies. Kind of a hub, isn't it? That's, it is. um, that yeah. actually seems a quite nice way to handle it. But again, people are probably still a bit careful, they're still in a mm. work environment, but um, I mean, I don't want to be the fun police, I don't want to be the one saying, hey, don't have alcohol, don't have fun, don't do this, it's all too risky, but just be aware of those risks, I think, you know, and, yeah. and, and try not to let it just go too far so that your tomorrow's headline and, mm. your, and your company's in disrepute. Yeah, I think what I get is it's about... Um, managing it in the right way so that it continues to be fun and continues to be humorous and can continue to be as opposed to be something that causes a big damage and can damage yep. um, mm. people's interpersonal relations and the reputation and everything like that. Yeah, I have talked to different people I know in high-profile high companies and now with company events, they're still having them, but there may be having a couple of people there who are not drinking and being kind of minders and just almost keeping like an eye on things. On, well, <laughs> almost like the official fun police, yes, but, but maybe deciding when the, the tab comes off the bar or okay. maybe just mm. making sure people get home safely or just don't go too far so that 
they, they don't want to be tomorrow's headlines. Mm. And that's not a bad approach if you've got a couple of people sort of um, being grown-ups for the night <laughs> everyone else can maybe loosen up a bit. Absolutely. I've noticed that, actually. They don't tend to stock the, the beer keg very well, so I think that's probably so by design. There's a limit to <laughs> yeah. that, yeah. yeah. Maybe uh, price and maybe social design. Yeah, I think I think there are some limits quietly coming in, and they're still they're not explicit, but they are quietly coming into play mm. so that people don't get into trouble. Yeah, fantastic. What would you say uh, your current idea of success is? Wow. Um, working here? Yeah. <laughs> um, being having freedom to pursue the stuff I want to pursue, that to me is that's my idea of success, but also being able to balance work-life balance is important to me, having time for family, time to enjoy life, time to walk my dog, time to do things. So when you can get things in some sort of harmony and be holistic in your life, to me that is successful. It's not necessarily about money or fancy cars or that sort of things, just being able to do the things that matter in your life. Mm. It's pretty simple for me. Yeah. And what is the worst advice you've ever been given? <laughs> I don't know. It's funny that we leave this it's one for last. It's a weird one to wrap up on. Sometimes. It is, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I did get some advice, and it's quite short and pithy. When I was planning to do um, humour as the topic for my PhD, I was in a different university at the time, and I was advised maybe to do something sensible like strategy. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't take that advice. I stuck with what was me and what I was doing, but it wasn't, wasn't great advice for me at the time because it wouldn't have worked for me. I'm not sensible and I don't like strategy, so um, <laughs> some humour was better. But I, I think it was said a little tongue-in-cheek as well. Okay. <laughs> Do you th- so you think um, for other students it's just um, being aware that you're probably going to get a bit of pushback if you want to go into humour or food or some of these less traditional um, management topics and but you should you should stick to your guns yeah um you don't it's not pushback so much sometimes it's hard to get taken seriously like your topics don't really matter they seem frivolous mm. but if you start unpacking and digging deep down they're things that actually matter to people yeah. and I'm all about people so um so I'd say to students if you think it matters if it's something that matters to you um, pursue it also if you're going to do research or this sort of work you've got to be interested in it. Uh, it's no use doing something to impress the professor who's saying do strategy and uh, impress that professor. If if your heart's not in it, you may as well um, find something that genuinely intrigues you and if you're lucky enough to be in the right context to explore that, well, then you have a, an element of success in my book that you're lucky enough to be able to follow something work-wise that, that you want to do. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Oh, it's been right. great thank talking you. to you. Great really talking to both yeah. of you. I like your questions and you extended them. So. Yeah, <laughs> cool places. And we'll make sure we put a plug in for the book once oh, it's yeah, out. Oh, yeah, thank we'll you. Sure yeah, that's great. Yeah, everywhere. come on, yeah, buy this Get, book. Everybody, everybody buying it. Make yeah. Barbara rich. <laughs> <laughs> See, really, I lied. <laughs> it's actually all about the money. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to stay home.